From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today... That's a very sad thing that happened in Georgia, and I would imagine that case is going to be dropped. Donald Trump reacted to allegations about Fonnie Willis, but Republicans in the state legislature were also quick to condemn her after a motion filed in the election conspiracy case accused Willis of hiring her romantic partner to be the lead prosecutor in the case. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. Condemnation also came from Republicans all the way in Washington, where members of the Judiciary Committee already wanted to investigate Willis over her prosecution of Donald Trump and his co-defendants. I'm Greg Bluestein. I'll have a live report on what Georgia business leaders and others heard from top state officials about their agenda for this session of the General Assembly. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Hey there, I'm Stephen Schumacher, president of Only in Cartersville, Bartow. Need a break from election season? Escape the hustle and bustle in Cartersville, Georgia, where you can start your day with a rejuvenating hike at Red Top Mountain State Park and wind down at Timberline Glamping's newest location at Pine Acres on Lake Alatoona. Looking for more fun by the water? Check out Terminus Wake Park or grab a kayak and paddle down the Etowah River. And don't forget to mark your calendars now for Barbecue and Bruce Fest in downtown Cartersville on April 20th. Unwind where relaxation meets adventure and create memories that can be made only in Cartersville, Bartow. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut, along with uh, my colleague Tia Mitchell, the AJC correspondent in Washington. In a minute, we're going to be joined by two professors of law who we turn to often when it comes to dealing with legal issues, Fred Smith of Emory University and Anthony Michael Kreis of Georgia State. Tia, before we turn to that, you're packing your bags. Friday you leave for Iowa. And I hope, here's the big question. I hope you have a really warm coat. It could be, it's going to be below zero in parts of Iowa um, by the time the caucuses meet. They're saying lows of five to 13 below zero by Monday night. Yeah, we picked a great weekend to go to Iowa. (laughs) Um, I have a good coat. I'm going to try to go get myself some good, um, you know, thermal heating, cuddly undergarments, I guess. Yeah, good. Um, Some long johns, as the old folks used to call them. (laughs) One other very quick note about this. The very, very cold temperatures could have an impact on the turnout for the caucus, because as you certainly know, um, the people of Iowa have to literally get up. It's going to be cold. It's going to be dark because the caucuses take place at night. So whether people are motivated to turn out could have an impact on the outcome. Right. And this shows how unique and what makes Iowa cool, um, but what also makes Iowa not the best predictor because there's so many other factors that go into successful caucusing and the organizing. But again, a lot of it's about enthusiasm because if you're just kind of so-so on your preferred candidate, you might not want to brave that weather. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to be, you're going to be there. Patricia Murphy's going to be there. And uh, Monday night, Tuesday, going to be very exciting for all of us who love watching politics. All right, let's get down to the news that we want to look at today with Fred Smith and Anthony Michael uh, Christ. Um, We know that yesterday there was a bombshell uh, motion filed in Fulton County Superior Court 
uh, from the attorney of one of the lower rank, I guess I'd say lower rank, one of the lesser known defendants in the conspiracy case, Michael Roman, who was accused of um, helping create slates of false electors in a number of states, but his name hasn't really come out too much in the uh, time that we've been looking at this. And what the allegation is, is that Fonnie Willis um, had a romantic, has a romantic relationship with Nathan Wade, who is the special prosecutor who she brought in to um, handle the special grand jury and the grand jury as they investigated the election conspiracy, which led, of course, to charges against Donald Trump and um, almost two dozen other defendants. So, Tia, it really was a bombshell accusation. We have heard no response yet from Fonnie Willis's office. Um, but let's talk about how this could have an impact, if at all, on the case moving forward. Tia, you'll st- you start, please. Yeah, I mean, and I'm um, eager to bring in our guests because I don't have the legal background, but I'll say on the surface, it looks bad. And part of the reason it looks bad is because so far, D.A. Willis has chosen not to publicly address the allegations. So that's allowed the allegations to kind of hang out there and be repeated without any pushback. Um I get why she's doing it that way. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but what I'm saying is that's kind of just one of the ramifications of that decision not to address the rumors is that the people who are spreading them get to do it without any countering of, of their narrative. Um, I think it is worth pointing out that this isn't the first time she's been accused of having an improper relationship. And the other time was against one of the defendants in the YSL a Rico case. And and when she did speak out eventually, the facts kind of seemed to make those allegations fall apart. Um, I also would say that, you know, generally speaking, people regard D.A. Willis as a, a smart lady, a lady who takes her job seriously, a lady who generally is regarded as working with integrity. So if these allegations are true, this would be a major, major misstep, whether it derails the case and all that other stuff. But just um, her personal reputation, this would be a big blow because I think a lot of people wouldn't expect her to make this kind of lapse in ethical judgment. All right. So, um, Anthony, if you'll start us off on, on this part of the um, conversation, the, the of course, the overriding question here is, is first of all, we don't know about the truth of this motion and the allegations that um, Nathan Wade is going through a divorce. The records have been now sealed and apparently sealed improperly, but um, Ashley Merchant, the, the lawyer for Michael Roman, apparently had some access to these records, we think, before they were sealed. Um, and, and now Fannie Willis has been subpoenaed to testify in Nathan Wade's ongoing divorce uh, on, on Monday. Okay, all that said, the most pertinent question is, if these allegations are true, and we don't know, is there any reason to think they could have any impact on the criminal case moving forward? Uh, Anthony and then Fred, I'd love to get your take on this. So I would first and foremost reiterate that this is a filing that is parroting information that is proffered in another filing in a divorce setting. 
um, which often contains contentious facts that may or may not be true. So, um, so, so we really don't know, you know, what degree to which this is this is accurate or semi-accurate or entirely accurate. But if it is true, certainly there is the pol- the political optics of it. And then there's in another silo the the legal ramifications. The political optics would be terrible because it would look as if she's you know kind of de facto profiting, um, or at least allowing a friend or a romantic partner to profit from a prosecution. Um, that that's not a good look, um, and that certainly is something that I think would be a major issue in a re- re-election campaign or perhaps in a future prosecutorial um, you know oversight commission setting. That. However, does not mean the same kind of conflict of interest that would warrant this being uh, you know, dismissed as a constitutional violation of Michael Roman's rights or any other defendant's rights um, or somehow an inherent conflict of interest. It's more of an internal ethical problem as opposed to something, say, an, a, you know, an, un, or an impermissible relationship with a defendant or with a witness or somehow like a kickback was involved. That, 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 might, that would be a whole different thing. But, but I think what we're dealing with is an internal ethical issue. Um, Fred, in the piece that uh, Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman, who have covered this case from the very, very beginning, uh, had in the uh, AJC, Um, They uh, point out that there are some attorneys who think it is conceivable, not necessarily likely, that if these allegations are correct, Fawny Willis and the entire prosecutorial team could possibly be dismissed from handling the case, even though the case would move forward. But who would prosecute it is another question. Yeah, I mean, I... Um, so I'll reiterate both of the things uh, that Anthony just said, uh, both in terms of we don't know the full facts uh, yet. Um, and also uh, that if this is true, then there's the political piece and the legal piece. And I think there seems to be unanimous disagree, unanimous agreement that on the political piece, um, that would be uh, that, that would be very damning for her going forward. Um, in terms of the uh, the legal piece, um, there's also two pieces of that, right? So there's the there's the ethical question, and then there's the due process question. Um, and so the the question that you're asking goes to whether or not essentially it would violate um, all of these defendants' due process rights um, for her to uh, continue to be involved uh, in the prosecution. Um, that's a really high standard, um, and uh, if 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 she herself has an economic interest in it. So if there's evidence that she herself economically benefited from said uh, contract um, with Nathan Wade, um, that is the sort of thing um, that, uh, that that could, could be the type of error, stru- structural error that could infect the entire process. Um, I haven't heard allegations of that sort. Uh, and in the absence of that, it's hard for me to imagine that that would be the end of it. Well, well, Fred, we, we do know, Ashley Merchant, the, the attorney, contends, we know that, that um, uh, Wade is being paid 645, has so far been paid $645,000 as the special prosecutor in this case. Ashley Merchant contends that he took Fonnie Willis on a number of what she calls lavish vacations. Now, is there a connection that you could make between her benefiting uh, from the money that um, he's being paid to her getting to go on these lavish vacations. Again, if if this is supportable by the facts. 
Right. And so those are the sorts of things that would connect. You know, I'm trying not to use the word pecuniary because it's such a bizarre legal term. It just means an economic interest. Those are the sort of things that would go to uh, tending to show that she might have an economic interest. And if that is the case, right, though, that's where the really um, difficult due process questions come into play. Um, and then within that, then the question would be, what is the remedy? So is the remedy that the prosecutions can't go forward at all? Uh, is the remedy that she herself is recused from all decision-making regarding the prosecution going forward? Um, or is it that her office is recused akin to what happened uh, with the lieutenant governor, um, where the entire Fulton County um, DA's office is not uh, permitted to be involved in the prosecution uh, because she held um a fundraiser for his opponent. Um, Tia, there are obviously political ramifications. Donald Trump has now, what a surprise, uh, spoken out, um, very critical of what the allegations are, at least. Let's listen to what Donald Trump said, and then uh, everybody can get involved in that conversation. Every legal analyst that I've spoken to, every legal analysts that I've read have said that case is so compromised now it has to be dropped. Uh, very good people were very badly hurt by that case. It's a shame. Very good people. People did nothing wrong. Uh, they did nothing different than what Democrats have been doing for years and years and years, whether it's slates or anything else that you're talking about. But they were very hurt, and it turns out that uh, she profited tremendously on that case. It's illegal. What she did is illegal. Tia, a couple quick uh, comments, and then I'd love to hear you on this. Um, first of all, you referred earlier to the fact that um, Willis was in, accused at one point of being involved with a defendant in the Young Thug case. She was accused, by the way, by Donald Trump. And of course, as you pointed out, there didn't seem to be any basis for that. Here he is again. Yeah, well, in this time, it wasn't Donald Trump making the original accusation, but of course, he jumped on it, which is to be expected. I mean... At the end of the day, he doesn't think this prosecution is legitimate. So, of course, he would jump on these allegations. I think it's also worth noting, I think we talked about this a little bit before the show with Anthony, but like there is often drama in divorce filing documents. We need to be clear that the origins of this doesn't even come from the Trump prosecution or the defendant. It comes from Attorney Wade's what looks like a messy divorce and and that divorce does coincide kind of with the beginnings of his work on this um this case um it it's clear that his ex-wife or soon to be ex-wife be believes there's shenanigans involving or or at least she's in her filings said that she believes there are shenanigans but divorce filings are not facts you can put anything in there um so but there is a deposition and and eventually we'll get uh da willis's side of the story i don't know i think she might be making a little bit of a mistake um waiting but i guess it depends on what she has to say anthony you pointed out to us right before the show that you used to teach family law so you're well aware that as tia points out in divorce cases um, if they're contentious, <clears throat> there's all sorts of allegations that each side can make that don't necessarily turn out to be true. <clears throat> I mean, we think of the criminal justice system as being an exceedingly adversarial, nasty place with defendants who are, you know, have an axe to grind against the prosecutors and vice versa. I mean, you know, a lot of that's true, but I mean, family law, family courts, domestic relations issues are incredibly contentious. 
um, you know, because people are, you know, their feelings are hurt and, and um, lives are ruined and, and, you know, futures um, that people thought they had are you know, ended. And so, um, you know, people make a lot of nasty allegations and sometimes they're true and sometimes they're, they're not. And sometimes they're misunderstandings and mis you know, misinterpretations of facts. So, um, you know, I, I think we do need to have a little bit of pause and, and to kind of understand where this information is coming from and understand it very well may be accurate and it very well may not be accurate at all. Um, but I, I think to Tia's point, you know, the, the issue here is, you know, this is not family court. Um, and so now we're dealing with a, a prosecution of national and international significance. And so I think there's on one hand, on the one hand, uh, Fonnie Willis is going to want to get the response right from the start and, and, and come out of the gate, um, I, I think, with uh, you know, the, the, a forceful response. Um, on the other hand, you can't let this linger forever as a political matter. So that that's another that's another kind of different uh, differentiation between the legal response, which could you know you could take days to do that, but as a political matter, I, I think um, not responding this week would be political malpractice. Yeah, Fred, I think that's an important point to pick up on. Um, Republicans in the state legislature have already made it clear. You know, we know that the they passed, of course, a law last session establishing a commission with oversight control over the work of district attorneys. The, they had that commission would investigate malpractice misdeeds by DAs and had the right to take action uh, to punish them. The state Supreme Court said, you asked us to be the ones who would uh, uh, establish rules for the commission. We can't do it. Therefore, the law is null and void. So now, as this session starts and the Fonnie Willis story comes to light, we're hearing those Republicans say, boy, now we need to get this commission. We've got to do it legally this time, and we're going to pass legislation quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine they won't, right? If they were able to pass it uh, a year ago, um, you know, this this just this comes right as the session uh, and in Atlanta uh, starts, right? It's a, it, it started this week, um, and so for these allegations to coincide with that, um, I think the political timing um, is bad on that score too. Um, so I think this will um, add fuel to the fire in terms of uh, reestablishing that commission and doing it in a way where the state supreme court has less involvement. Um, you know, in terms of her responding through filings versus her responding in the press. Um, and I'm sympathetic to the view that her, in her capacity as a prosecutor and as an officer of the court, doesn't want to litigate every allegation uh, through the press. Uh, and, you know, and, and, I, and I think she's probably trying to not set that particular precedent um, and try to respond in the way that is the most appropriate, which would be through a legal filing. And that's what her office said they're going to do. Um, they're going to respond through a legal filing. Um, but but I, I think there is urgency uh, in that uh, legal filing coming uh, coming soon because of the political uh, ramifications. Well, but OK, so Tia, I, I know we should probably turn to Fred and Anthony on this, but the timing of this now becomes interesting because she has been subpoenaed to testify in the divorce proceedings uh, on Monday. And it strikes me that could have an impact on if, if Fonnie Willis wants to get out more quickly, as I think both Fred and Anthony are suggesting would make sense, both from a legal point of view and a political point of view, 
I'm not sure how much she can say before she testifies or gives a deposition in the divorce case on Monday. Well, I guess my um, question for the for the attorneys is, does I mean, th- there's nothing keeping her from talking about what she would talk about at the deposition, I would think. But again, I'm no attorney. Um, but even if that's the case, she wants to do the deposition first because she wants to preserve the integrity of this, you know, clearly drama filled divorce. Um, then you would hope that she leaves that courthouse and goes straight to the microphones because they'll be waiting for her. Anthony, uh, again, drawing on your expertise in family law, wouldn't you want to wait if you're Fonnie Willis to give a deposition before you give fodder to uh, his wife's, Nathan Wade's wife's attorney for the deposition? I mean, I, I think the question is, is what is most important to you? Um, you know, I, I think that the legal filings will not really be a litigation of the, you know, or litigating of the facts. It'll be purely legal, right? This is, this is a standard. The standard's not been met. You have to reject it, Judge McAfee. That's one issue or one way to approach it. And then you can go to, right, call your press conference and say, now I'm going to address the actual allegations. And here's why, you know, they are this, you know, false, they're wrong. They're, you know, they're, they're partially accurate, but the, the truth has been, you know, um, you know, kind of, uh, stretched and and here's what the reality is. I mean, there there are different ways that that I think she can approach it. Um, with you know, I, I think that the you know she's got real, she's very little at stake personally in the right, the deposition in a you know someone else's divorce proceeding. Well, if it's made public and if she acknowledges that they're having this relationship, she can't lie under oath. No. Um, and, and so if she acknowledges it, and the and the deposition is made public. It does have an impact, at least on her personal. Life, uh, Fred, but I think that, that Anthony makes a, a really interesting point. What you do in court in the DA's office is perhaps to argue that without regard to these accusations, the legitimacy of these accusations, here is why none that doesn't meet the standard of <clears throat> either dismissing the charges or uh, taking our office out of the case. The personal matter is di- separate. Do you agree with that? Uh, it is separate at, at a very general level, except that to the extent that there's this fact question that might linger around how much she personally benefited, um, you know, that that's something that it's going to require some evidence of, of some sort at some point, mean, if, if that's the allegation. Um, and so I guess it depends on... Uh, it depends on what the facts are in terms of how much she can simply make a legal argument that doesn't delve into um, that doesn't delve into the the facts. I mean, suppose they, it's just they don't have a romantic relationship, but they have a they have a, a personal friendship. I, it wouldn't strike me as surprising that many district attorneys and attorney generals that the people who they select to uh, when when they hire people are people who they know professionally or maybe even. Uh, have friendships with so 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 the facts um, the the facts will drive how much this can just be a legal question. Well, one way or the other, Tia, another bombshell in a case that has had nothing but a series of bombshells for what two years plus now. And one last question before we have to take a break, Tia. It's already been referred to, 
But uh, Fannie Willis's political future is at stake here. She's up for re-election uh, this year. She certainly plans to run for re-election. She's very proud of the work she's done as district attorney. She's made that clear over and over again. But all Fannie Willis has to do to look at how uh, fragile your hold on the office can be is look over her shoulder at the fact that she got the office by beating a longtime uh, district attorney, Paul Howard. So she's well aware of the fact that anything can happen in an election year. And this certainly is going to be something that an opponent who decides to take her on, along with um, uh, a couple of other matters, will weigh into the campaign in a very big way. Right. And not just that, but if these allegations have legs of and, you know, even if they don't derail the Trump prosecution completely, if these allegations have any legs, it's going to be a headache for this case. It's going to increase the questions from Republicans. It's going to increase the skepticism that this case is politically motivated or that Fonnie Willis um, didn't have pure intentions um, when she brought the charges about. It's going to make the case even more of a mess in drama field um, than it already had the potential to be because just of how many defendants and the charges and who's involved. So, um, you know, for, for the sake of those who want this to happen in kind of the smoothest way possible, I'm sure they're praying that these um, allegations aren't true. Real quick, because we got to get it to break, there's also repercussions on the Hill, on your beat. Um, the Judiciary Committee, House Judiciary Committee, is already investigating Fonnie Willis. Jim Jordan, the chair of the committee, certainly has already begun talking about how what, what this filing uh, uh, says about their further need to investigate Fonnie Willis, Willis right? Yeah, and I think that it, you know, we're seeing at the state house, we're seeing it at the Capitol as well. That again, there are allies of former President Trump that are looking for any excuse to question the legitimacy of these cases and these charges. All right, Tia um, gets the last word in this segment. We got to get to our first break of the show. When we come back, we're going to discuss the trial that's now underway in Amy Totenberg's federal courtroom, challenging the security of the Dominion voting machines. It's a very significant case. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. I'm Bill Nygut, along with Tia Mitchell in Washington, and we're joined uh, today 
by uh, Anthony Michael Christ, professor of law at Georgia State University, and Fred Smith, a professor of law at Emory University. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I just want to remind you all, I know you know that you can listen to us now every morning, weekdays at 10 here on WABE, where we're live. But of course, you can also continue to hear our podcast, which now drops every weekday, about a few hours after the show is over. So you can stay way up to speed on what's happening in politics in Georgia. Um, let's talk a little bit about this trial in Amy Totenberg's uh, court. Uh, it's a civil trial, um, Fred. But what's interesting about it is there have been so many uh, past court cases that involve concerns about election security brought by MAGA Republicans. That's not the case in this trial. This was actually brought back, started about six years ago. It, was, it happened after John Ossoff lost the special election for a seat in the U.S. House, and a liberal-leaning group, Coalition for Good Governance, brought this case saying they were concerned that the Dominion voting machines were not safe and secure, could be hacked, could change the outcome of an election. There's a certain ironic twist that it's now in federal court. Amy Totenberg has already said, um, I can't order uh, what the litigants want, what what uh, they want a, um, a switch to all paper ballots. But she could, in the, as the trial goes forward, look at other remedies um, or uh, answer some questions about the security of the voting machines. Fred? Yeah, that's right. So in the initial complaint, when you read it, it starts exactly where, where you began. It starts with uh, the sixth district race. Uh, it begins with the, the, the John Ossoff, uh, Karen Handel race. It has language like the voters of the sixth district will never know uh, who won that election. That, that's where it started. Um, during the course of the litigation, uh, what Judge Totenberg uh, did do um, is express deep concern and uh, about the voting machines as they existed between 2002 and 2017. Um, and so today, I mean, voters may remember or recall that the last time you voted and the last few times that we voted, um, we you get a you get you do get a piece of paper <laughs> that you run through uh, a machine, and that piece of paper actually does list. Uh, who you voted for, right? And so there is this this paper record that exists now that didn't uh, exist then. Um, but uh, the plaintiffs continue to uh, to contend that that's not sufficient. They say that it's too much of a burden for people to look and try to remember whether or not what's on the paper is consistent with what they voted for, et cetera. Uh, they contend that the QR code uh, is, uh, is is not enough uh, either. Um, that is that is too complex, and that maybe it's capable of being uh, uh, penetrated in some way as well. Um, and so these questions linger. I mean, I will say the the, the process. The, so the plaintiff's attorneys here, uh, Morrison Forster, is a highly respected uh, law firm, um, and so that leads me to I, I have to give some credence uh, to uh, to the complaint. That said. Um, this doesn't strike me as a violation of the constitutional right to vote, uh, where what we look to is the burden on the right to vote, and you weigh that uh, against the government interest. Uh, and here, the burden on the right to vote doesn't strike me as very high, given that there is this paper record. Um, and uh, and the interest of the state 
in being able to ensure both a safe but also efficient election system um, is really high. So um, unless there's some sort of kind of technical state law issue, and because they have also raised a lot of state law claims, um, I, I, it's hard for me to see the constitutional argument. Anthony? Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I, and I think, you know, as somebody and, and maybe Bill, you, you could also resonate with this. Um, when I voted in Chicago, I would vote for hundreds of judges. In, 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 and I'm not even exaggerating. I mean, there would be elections where I'd sit and there'd be 60 judges that I would vote for retention. And yeah. then in Chicago, uh, you know, you vote on the electronic machine and then it prints out your ballot in, in, in its entirety. And you're supposed to watch it roll through and make sure. Um, that it's accurate. And, and I mean, that in that scenario, I really, truly could not remember who I voted to retain or not, um, with a few exceptions. And, and so, you know, there are, you know, in Georgia, we don't have that kind of process. I, I don't think it is, as Fred said, a huge burden on voters, um, right, to look at the paper ballot and say, okay, those are the people I did vote for. And I mean, I think there's, there's, there's a pretty light burden there, really almost non-existent. Um, you know, and, and I think people, I think people are naturally skeptical of the QR codes. And I, I think I can somewhat understand that because that's, you know, you can't verify that necessarily. And so I, I, I see why people might feel uneasy with that, but we do have this paper uh, receipt on, on our electronic voting or in the electronic voting system. Now, I, I do think that that should reassure voters. But again, as, as Fred said, I, I don't see that there's a burden here that, uh, you know, impinges the right to vote in some kind of way that's unconstitutional or violates federal law. Tia, on the very first day of the trial, Coffee County was the uh, real focus where uh, uh, MAGA Republicans, including the uh, head of the elections in Coffee County, were able to get into the voting machines down there and pull confidential uh, voting records. And the plaintiffs are arguing that's an example of how the machines can be hacked. Right. And uh, that's why I just always go back to the fact that, remember, Republicans are in control. So after the 2018 election, going into 2020, when Georgia was deciding what new voting machines to get, they fought not to have hand-marked paper ballots. And I remember this so clearly because I moved to the to Atlanta in 2017 to work for the AJC. Before that, I'd spent 20 years in Florida. I'd never voted by machine, by computer before until I moved to Georgia. I always had to mark a paper ballot. So I was always like, why do you guys, this is some, you know, uh, those who remember the TV show Scandal, you, you hear, you know, Scandal talked about tampering with, um, you know, with the, with the data cards or whatever. So I say all that to say there was robust conversation. Those same groups that have sued were saying then Get hand-marked paper ballots. And the Republicans who were in charge said, no, we want these to vote by computer, then have it give us the ballot already printed. That was a choice made by Republicans. And I'm not saying Democrats didn't agree, but what I'm saying is some of the same, the Republicans who who now say that's not right, it's your party who did it this way. But I also just want to make one more point, Bill. When Gabe Sterling was on last week, what he said really did resonate when he said there are pros and cons to both. 
And one of the cons to hand-marked ballots is you do have the user error where people overvote if you fill out too many ovals or they undervote because instead of filling out the oval completely, they just put a check mark. So there is, again, as someone who came from Florida and lived through the hanging chads and everything (laughs) else, there are, you know, there are pros and cons on both sides. Tia, you weren't even old enough to vote during the hanging Chad's election. But um, I, believe <laughs> I was in college. Thank you very oh, much. All right. I didn't realize I was that. a all voter. All right. But hey, here's one of the reasons I love the fact we're live. Literally within the last two minutes, Mark Nisi, and by the way, Greg Bluestein is going to be on in the final segment of the show, because right now the Eggs and Issues Breakfast, an annual event where the speaker, the governor, and the lieutenant governor tell a huge audience of of uh, business leaders and others what their agenda is. Well, just two minutes ago, uh, <laughs> Andrew, the Speaker of the House, John Burns, said he is calling going to call for the elimination of computer codes on paper ballots and stronger supervision of the Secretary of State's office. And, and, and Anthony, there is a point there. When Gabe Sterling was on the show last week, he said, oh, no, we do actually, this is only a ballot marking device, the Dominion machines. You get a paper record. Well, that was a little disingenuous because it is true. You have no idea when you feed the QR code, that paper into the machine, you don't have any record of how that machine read the QR code. And so that's why I think the speaker is calling for an elimination of the codes. Yeah, I mean, I would I would love a system. I mean, and I, I'm not a, I'm not a voting machine expert here, but I mean, I certainly would love a, a system right where you you vote on the computer and it prints out your ballot and it looks like a traditional scantron. Like right? that, I think would make people feel much better, right? In a way that it would reflect essentially what a hand mark ballot would look like without the introduction uh, of, of possibilities for user error in the same way that, you know, actual, actually physically hand-marked ballots present. So I, I think there are ways to improve the system, you know, and I, and I think there are people, um, the, the, the issue here is this, right? There are people of good faith who really want the electoral process to, to be improved and to have uh, the people of Georgia feel good about the system. You know, there are people who are making proposals out of places of good faith, but there are also people who are doing it out of, uh, out of a place of conspiracy theories. And, I, and so it's really hard, I think, for us to, you know, or at least we have to disentangle those sometimes and understand that sometimes the solutions they're proposing might be the same, even if their motivations aren't necessarily the same. So I, I think, I think, you know, anything we could do to make people feel better about that is, is a good thing. Fred, one last point before we uh, have to end this part of our show today. Um, the plaintiffs are arguing, of course, that – and they've had a witness who says, yes, the machines are hackable. I've done it. Um, and the Secretary of State's office, the state, responds, well, it's maybe possible, but the fact of the matter is we have never once had an incident in which we've seen any manipulation of votes in the Dominion voting machines. I, I get that argument, but that doesn't mean it couldn't happen. Sure. Right. And so there's there's a policy question and then there's a legal question. So so whether even if that's so, that doesn't mean that these machines are illegal. It may it may mean that it makes sense to to go to a different system, but it doesn't mean that the current system violates the law. Um, I mean, I would note that even with the QR code, though, the fact that there is a paper record means that if there's a recount, right, if there's if, if there's a serious question that emerges, 
there there is this paper record that one can look to. And in terms of the fact that it might be penetrable, you know, we, we should certainly, as a matter of policy, do all we can to make sure that we have uh, a voter system um, that can't be hacked. But I'll note that in a, a very intent actor who's intent on breaking the law and who is intent on uh, on trying to uh, impede voter will um, can can probably do that with just about any system, including a paper system. Tia, one final point. Um, you know, there's a lot of Me Tooism among Republicans who talk about, uh, well, we're not the only ones that have challenged the results of an election. We've said elections are fake in the past. Democrats have done it as well. Um, well, here's an example where a liberal organization um, has questioned whether the outcome of that Karen Handel John Ossoff race was uh, handled. Did, did the machines give the correct vote outcome? So there is an example that there are Democrats or liberals who have challenged the system, too. Yeah, I think when Democrats say Republicans try to overturn an election, they're not talking about using the the court system to file challenges. I mm. think they're talking about spreading falsehoods and breaching the U.S. Capitol. But, you know, call me crazy. <laughs> no, we won't do that, Tia Mitchell. Um, that's it. We've got to uh, move on and get to our final break. In a couple minutes, Greg Bluestein is going to be joining us. He's down at the Eggs and Issues breakfast, and he'll certainly talk about what Speaker Burns said about the election machines. Um, but we'll also uh, talk about what the governor had to say and the lieutenant governor, Anthony Michael Christ, Fred Smith. Thank you so much for being with us today on Politically Georgia. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. You'll get all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more on AJC.com. Plus, you'll also have access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters. So join our community by going to AJC.com start. That's AJC.com start. So you always know what's really going on. Greg Bluestein is with us now, too. I mentioned before the break uh, today's been the uh, uh, date for the Eggs and Issues Breakfast, which traditionally and for many, many years has been one of the most important early events on the calendar for uh, the General Assembly session because it's a gathering in which the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker of the House lay out for a huge crowd of business leaders, nonprofit executives, and others at least some of what their agenda is going to be. And Greg, We've already reported that Mark Nisi literally just filed a story saying that John Burns, the speaker, is going to uh, propose legislation that will eliminate the computer codes on paper ballots. But I'm sure much more happened that you can fill us in on. Yeah, Bill, sometimes these eggs and issues breakfasts are pretty slow. This was not one of those times. There's a, a tremendous amount of 
of news coming out of uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, where I literally just left. I'm in the parking lot right next door. Um, a lot of news, and you hit the nail on the head. One of the biggest pieces of, of uh, developments was Georgia Speaker John Burns saying not only that he wanted to eliminate computer codes and paper ballots, but he also wanted to give, in his words, more autonomy to the state election board over supervision of Brad Raffensperger's office over the Secretary of State's office. And that goes back to um, that deadlock vote a few weeks ago where basically it was a 2-2 vote on whether or not uh, the state election board should launch an investigation to how Raffensperger handled the 2020 election. Well, now it looks like uh, the state election board could have more power to do so under this legislation. Uh, tell us about the governor and the lieutenant governor. What were the headlines you took away from their observed comments? Yeah, I mean, the governor made a lot of news, Bill. Uh, $2 billion worth of new spending, um, some of it on some pretty significant packages that, if passed, could affect Georgians uh, in many ways. First of all, $1.5 billion of that spending would go to road projects, would go to speed up projects in Georgia's uh, transportation pipeline, repairs, nothing specific that he mentioned, but just speeding up a lot of the projects that are already in the works in Georgia, and I'm sure these will be scattered throughout the state. And then another $250 million for water and sewer projects. Again, he didn't issue any specifics of, of what water and sewer projects those will be, but those are also, that was music to the ears of a lot of the, uh, the small town mayors in that room. But two other things I really do want to point out um, that could have really big, could, that could be interesting debates, but have a huge impact. One is that under his plan, UGA would get $50 million for a new medical school. And Bill, this has been something that has been debated for a very long time in Georgia about whether or not UGA would actually get a freestanding medical school. And Athens native Brian Kemp wants to make that happen with a $50 million appropriation in the state budget. Wow, Tia, that's a very, very big announcement. And also, Tia, of course, um, picking up on what Greg just said, there's been a lot of talk before the session began about this enormous surplus. Will Governor Kemp be willing to release some of these funds beyond income tax cuts and that sort of thing um, that will absorb some of that. Um, but uh, uh, apparently $2 billion in spending and $50 billion for a, for a new medical school uh, is a good head start. Or $50 million, Greg? Do I have that right? Yeah, $50 million. Yeah, $50, million. $50, million. $50 million would be a very big medical school. <laughs> Tia? <laughs> so, so, Greg, you know, I'm always fascinated um, with the Georgia General Assembly, uh, as you look forward to this year, what are the dynamics between, you know, you've got Governor Kemp, but his lieutenant governor is, you know, more MAGA. He's a Trump guy. And but Lieutenant Governor has so much power in Georgia, which is unique among a lot of the states. And then you also have the House Speaker, who's considered kind of more of the more mainstream, less MAGA. So what's that dynamic between those three leaders? Yeah, it's such a great question because it really will guide the future of our state. I mean, think about how different it is just from a couple of years ago when you had the three-legged stool, they like to call it the capital of the, the, the then House Speaker David Ralston and then, then Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan and Governor Kemp. It was very different, right? Then now we have a new speaker um, after the late speaker's uh, death, and we have a new lieutenant governor um, who, as you mentioned, is, is far more MAGA. Uh, and we're still seeing that play out. Too. We saw it last year in really remarkable terms because we had votes on issues that, that, that Lieutenant Governor Burns, uh, sorry, Lieutenant Governor Jones pushed that really had no chance of passing, like Buckhead Cityhood. Um, 
like a sports gambling bill that really that failed and, and you know, fell flat. Um, and you don't really see powerful Republicans bring up bills that aren't going to pass. And so that started to change um, <laughs> this past year. And we can still see those ramifications. Um, there's a good chance that a sports betting bill hits the floor of the state Senate this week. So for everyone who thought that it was going to be a slow start to the session, you can have sports gambling up tomorrow for a debate in the Georgia Senate. Well, that's really interesting. Greg, let's go back to the uh, $50 million in um, uh, funding for a new independent or freestanding medical school at University of Georgia. Um, here's one of the things that I'm interested in in terms of that. Go back to last session when mm -hmm. uh, the lieutenant governor got into a battle with um, Sonny Purdue, the chancellor of the university system. Sonny Purdue came out against one of Burt Jones's most important issues, the certificates of need. And, as, and, and what uh, transpired after that was Burt Jones, you'll tell me if this is really close to accurate, at least appeared to be punishing the chancellor by removing from the budget more than $50 million in new funding, not for a medical school, but just for the University of Georgia in general. In general. So uh, how does that play into this medical school appropriation this year? Yeah, there, there, that might be a part of it. Although Burt Jones, as a, as a UJ grad, I don't, I don't think he'd be opposed to this idea. The, the, the reason why it's so controversial or has been so controversial in the past is because uh, Augusta area lawmakers have been really reluctant to, to give up the reins uh, of, of MCG, of Medical College of Georgia, being the only, um, of the only public medical school in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so over the years, you've seen medical schools start to, different programs start to spread to other parts of the state, but still through the umbrella of MCG. Uh, I think Governor Kemp is ready to pick that fight this year. He's he's ready to go say it's it's time for uh, a medical school in UJ. And I do want to mention a separate project that's even bigger. The governor's spending blueprint also includes $178 million for a new dental school that would be built at Georgia Southern University, likely actually in Savannah. So we're talking big projects uh, around the state, and that might not be an easy fight too because there's you know there's there's always. Other law lawmakers who represent other interests in other parts of town would rather have that 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 new school in their backyard. Tia, um, we cannot uh, ignore the fact that some of what Greg Bluestein talks about in terms of the agenda for this session, including the sports betting coming to the state senate early on, all happens unfolds in an election year. So both the members of the House and the Senate are going to be very mindful of what they pass and what they do not pass in terms of their own reelection campaigns. Yeah. And I also think they're going to be mindful of who they want to help and who they want to hurt. You know, it is a, it's, it's not a statewide elections right now. We don't even have any Senate races on the ballot, but people have allegiances to Trump. And I think, they want to give Trump the best chance to win in Georgia, but they want to help elevate issues that they think might help Trump at the polls. I think that's one of the reasons why elections will come up. I think that's one of the reasons why Fannie Willis and the issue of prosecutions will come up um, because they're they want to put their candidate and they want to put Georgia in the best place for their candidate to win. So I think that might um, affect. But I, I definitely want to know what Greg thinks. Yeah, and, and I, I completely agree. Politics will spill into this session. It's not just going to be 2024 politics. 
It's going to be 2026 politics. Oh, yeah. As people like Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, as others who are looking at statewide runs in a couple of years, they're already going to lay out their agendas, guys. I mean, we're already seeing some of it. We're, we, we didn't hear anything really new from Lieutenant Governor today, so there's not much to report on his front. He just really highlighted what happened last year. But we've already seen some of his proposals, like arming teachers, like paying teachers to carry guns in, in schools and new restrictions on social media platforms and things like that. They seem like they're ready-made for the campaign trail in 2026. Greg Bluestein, I know you've already filed a story on at least some of what was said at Eggs and Issues, and I assume, and that was even before everybody had a chance to speak, so I assume we'll be seeing you on AJC.com with even more, knowing you very shortly, so we should let you get back to working on <laughs> you got it. Thanks a lot, Thanks, uh, Greg. <laughs> Um, one last quick note, because we don't have much time, Tia. On, as we said, over the weekend, you'll be in Iowa. I know you're following Marjorie Taylor Greene and Rich McCormick around. Uh, but also, who knows, you may run into Ron DeSantis, uh, Nikki Haley, and they have a big debate tonight on CNN. Yes, I'll um, be watching the debate. We're going to be, you know, McCormick will be with Ron DeSantis, or at least stumping for Ron DeSantis. Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, stumping for Donald Trump. Um, Patricia is going to be um, following around Nikki Haley a little bit. So it'll be interesting. You know, Iowa's a unique place as far as how they do their caucuses and how they handle primaries. They're not the best bellwether, but, you know, they are the first in the nation. So they will show us. If nothing else, they'll show us some things about enthusiasm and messaging. Tia, thank you so much for everything you contributed today. It's always a pleasure to work with you on this show. One last quick note. If you have a question you'd like to ask us here on Politically Georgia, just call the Politically Georgia hotline at 404-526-2527. Leave your question and we will get to it with Shaney B's guidance on um, who's got the questions we need to answer. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.